I'd like to pick up in chapter three in our study of Ecclesiastes. Uh, as you know from our study, at least I, I hope you remember this, until you get to chapter two in our study, uh, Solomon has left God out of the picture. We're on this journey with him. We know where it's going to end, but I don't want to get there yet. I want to participate in this journey with him because I think that's how we learn from it. And up until the very end of chapter two, Solomon has been in despair. He has, he finds no purpose. He sees everything as futile, as having no meaning. And we, remember, we walk through all the different things he did with him. And then he brings God into the picture, and he begins to see something, and obviously it's part of what, when someone comes to know the Lord, they begin to understand, with God in the picture, things have a different perspective. And so now he begins to wrestle with the providence of God, the sovereignty of God. Now, the uh, I'll review this, I think you already know this, but I'll do it nonetheless. The sovereignty and providence of God are two different words. They're not synonyms. Sovereignty means God reigns and God rules. Providence means God is involved in everything. You can have a distant landlord who's sovereign, but a distant land, I'm using a, a crazy analogy, but I think it might work, who is not involved. But a distant landlord who's involved in everything, that would be an example of his providence. So God is not an absentee, distant landlord. He is involved in everything. And so this transcendent God that he brings in at the end of chapter 2 is a God who gives this meaning and purpose to life. And so he begins an analysis of this. And I'm going I'm to lay on the table a couple of things that are very important. Because God is now in his worldview, in his picture, in his understanding what's happening, that doesn't answer all his questions. As a matter of fact, throughout the entire book, Solomon will, he will use this word once or twice, but fundamentally what he's saying, there's still a mystery to life. I can't figure things out. And that's, of course, a statement. I'm finite, I'm created, I'm temporal. God is infinite, eternal, and not bound by time. And so, therefore, that distance is what makes the difficult. We do not see anything than what is immediately in front of us. We have no idea what tomorrow will bring. God does. And so this is going to create a lot of tension for Solomon. And that the more you think about it, and the more I've thought about it, I've studied this stuff for 38 years, I don't have anything solved. The more I study, the more I realize how much I don't know. I'm serious about that. And so what Solomon is now beginning as he's working through this journey and sharing it with us, everything for everything. There's a season. There's a time for every matter under heaven. And then we, we studied that last week. He goes through this. It's a poem he writes. But these 14 opposites, which cover all dimensions of life. And so this is this is important fact of Solomon as he interjects this into his journey. I believe there's a God. I know this God exists, and I know that God is involved. And all of these aspects of life are something God's interested in. So he then concludes in verse 9, a question he's asked twice in the book. What gain has the worker for his toil? 
We studied that in chapter two. And it was an abysmal thing for him. But now God's in the picture. Now he has a different perspective. And so he says, I have seen. So verse 10 is he answers that question. I have seen the business that God has given to the children of men to be busy with. Okay, now that's, it maybe sounds to you like a little funny way of saying it, but God's now in the picture as he's on this journey, and he says, I, I've seen something. I'm understanding something that I did not or had even maybe rejected before. God is involved. And God does three things for us. There are three conclusions he reaches. There are three propositions that he lays on the table. There are three truths that he learned, and because he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, you and I are reading and studying it 3,000 years later, we can benefit from it. What are the three? Number one, he, and the he is a pronoun referring to God, God's the antecedent of that, God, has made everything beautiful in its time. Now, if you Look at the word everything. That's the same word he used in verse 1. So, so what, what Solomon is saying is, they're, they're in God's providence of his universe, in God's sovereign direction of his universe, everything has a purpose, everything has meaning, and he uses this superlative. It's beautiful. Now, when, when, you, when you read that, it's not necessarily, although it can be, something that when you view it, you say like a, a beautiful flower in the summertime or a beautiful sunset or, or what Fred shared with me a couple of weeks ago in a photo. That, you say it's beautiful, but it can also mean beautiful in the sense it's orderly, it makes sense, I can, I can get my intellectual arms around it, around it, I can embrace it. I can make sense of it. And so what he's saying is God has given us this ability, this capacity to understand something. That his rule of his world and the way he manages his world and the way his providence is involved in every aspect of his world is beautiful. He's making a value judgment about it. He's making a, he's drawing a conclusion about it. And that is really important because if you go back to Genesis chapter 1, which is the account of God's creation of the physical universe, you remember that? Six days, six days. Every time God does something, what does God say? It's good. And that's a very important Hebrew word because that Hebrew word means God has just created something that is conducive to order and conducive to life. So from that vantage point, and I'm using that vantage point of, of, of creation, God, what God does is beautiful. It's not disorderly. It's not chaotic. It's not dysfunctional. It's orderly. It's beautiful. It's conducive to life. That's, the, that's why God creates things. And you, you go through that and analyze that in Genesis. So to me, that's an extraordinary statement. It's an affirming statement. My God. My God has made everything beautiful in its time. There is a time for everything, and everything about life has order, has structure, has stability. We may not understand it, 
As a matter of fact, I'm quite convinced in that group this size plus the guys online, none of you knows exactly with great precision everything that's happening to you and you can explain why everything's happening. Bill Richards does not know why he fell and broke his arm. He doesn't understand. Well, you can ask, oh, God, why did you allow this to happen? Why did you permit this to happen? I have a very close friend who's in our church, he and his wife. He has, uh, he's gone through the second bout with cancer. They've just found lesions on his brain. He, he's, he has two young children. You know, humanly speaking, he's not going to survive 2023. Can you make sense of that? Can you say God has made everything beautiful in its time with that? I can't. But from eternity, this is where Solomon is working, from eternity, and this is really, a, this is a statement of faith. From eternity, that's going to make sense. Now it doesn't make sense. So in the declaration that you see in verse 7, the first part of verse 11, excuse me, is, is really a statement of what he's observed, what he's learned, what he's seen, but it's also a statement of faith. He goes on and makes a sec second observation and, and in effect puts that observation on the table for us to consider. Also, I read from the ESV translation, but also he has put eternity in man's heart. There has been, um, I mean, there have been, I have in my file several journal articles on this. There's a book on this trying to grapple with what in the world is Solomon saying here. And so let's look at it from this vantage point. Eternity or eternal as an adjective, eternity or eternal is an attribute of God. You would all agree with that. God is not confined to space and time. God is above space and time. God does not have a beginning. God does not have an end like you and I do, or any creature. So if God puts eternity in the human heart, it is an aspect of being created in God's image. Take you back to Genesis 1, 26 and 27. God says, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, in the image of God who created him, male and female created him. Remember, that's what that passage reads, how that passage reads. So if we bear the image of God, it means we resemble God in certain ways, and we represent God because we have dominion authority over his worlds in that same passage. So an attribute of God, he has placed that in our heart. It's part of being in his image. Okay, I got that. What's heart? Well, heart is obviously a metaphor. It's a figure of speech. And in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, the heart is the center of our being. It's not just the organ that moves our blood through our body, but it's the center of our being. Most expositors understand it to be the center of our being, the center and core of our will. What, what is it? in the center of our being that motivates and causes us to do the things that we do. 
So if God has taken, as part of being in his image, put eternity in our hearts, that means in terms of the center of our being, there's a drive. There's a desire. There's a, there, there is a, there is a, a deep-seated compulsion to understand something. So if you've worked, and I think you all have, because some of you have been with me since we started this, but if you go back and look at the notes or just read it on your own, this is what Solomon had been wrestling with. In the center of my heart, I want to know why I work so hard. In the center of my heart, I want to know why I've invested so wisely. That's some of the things he's talked about. In the center of my heart, I want to know why my pursuit of, of an Epicurean lifestyle a pursuit of pleasure, and he went at it with abandon, why that didn't satisfy me. I mean, you could go on and on and on. He investigated the difference between a fool and a wise man, all those things. Because he's looking for, there's got to be something beyond just the physical world in which I live. There, there has to be something beyond just pursuing sexual pleasure or pursuing to eat and gorge myself with food and drink. I mean, just all of those things, there's got to be something beyond that because as Solomon says, I do all this, I get to the end of all this, and I still not satisfied. So the temporal, finite purposes don't satisfy. Why? Because God has put within each human being a, a deep-seated, compulsive drive to figure things out. Why do I do what I do? Why am I pursuing this? And I mean, you, I, I can't imagine you all don't know what I'm talking about. You know people. You know individuals in business, in education, in medicine, whatever the profession is, day laborers, whatever, who are, who are actively doing what they're doing and amassing a whole bunch of stuff. And you say, yeah person doesn't really seem very happy, very satisfied. Solomon is saying the reason is is that God has put in each human heart the desire, the compulsive drive to figure things out. So I put it this way. God has put in the human heart the desire to figure out the eternal significance of what I'm doing. This is the, the atheist, the person who's a pure naturalist, who believes there's nothing beyond the physical world. When they are intellectually honest, this is the area that is most difficult for them. And it becomes more and more difficult the older they get, because as you get closer and closer to the end of life, that kind of a question is going to become more paramount. And I, I remember talking with an atheist one time. I used to never think about that. Now I'm thinking about that, and I'm asking, when I take my last breath, is that it? When I take my last breath, I cease to exist? Because that's what the atheist believes. You take your last breath, you cease to exist. So that pure materialistic view of things is going to create crisis because you want to find out there's got to be something more than just this physical world. 
Do you mean when I die, I cease to exist? It's over? The, the, uh, nothing? You know, the pure atheist, that's exactly what they believe. You are nothing but molecules and atoms and all the stuff that make up your body. And when you die, all that shuts down and you cease to exist. And if you really believe that, that has to drive you, if you're intellectually honest, to these fundamental questions. Why do I do what I do? As Solomon had said earlier, he's going to say it again later in the book. If that's true, if that really is what I believe, I might as well eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow I die. Or another way of putting it, which is a very popular way of talking about it today, I just live for the moment. And so, I mean, this is, I, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to flesh out all that this means. Because this phrase, eternity in man's heart, the human part of being in the image of God is that. And until, until that's satisfied, and for so many people, it's never satisfied. They die hopeless human beings. And the second they die, they realize everything I believed was wrong. But it's too late. And so to, 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 to grasp this, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put it one more way, and, and I saw a hand there. Let me put it one more way. I mean, you use a term that is becoming kind of a big term today. A lot of people are using it. It's meta-narrative. Have you ever heard of that word, meta-narrative? It's kind of a, you know, people that think up new words to try to describe what we're doing, <laughs> think up that word. But meta means large narrative, you know, narrative of story. Every one of us, has a story. Again, that's the way a lot of people talk today. And that's important. It's an important way to think about it. Everyone else has a story. Solomon is sharing with us his story. But the idea of a meta-narrative, there's got to be a big story. Meta, big. There's got to be a big story. Mark Zuckerberg just changed the name of his company. He compiled all the things that, you know, WhatsApp and and Facebook, Instagram, all that's in his case. You put it all together, all these three different issues. You know what he's called his company now? Meta. That's the name of his company. He's grabbing that wonderful word and using it for the name of his company. Well, anyway, and so how do I fit? There's got to be a big narrative. There's got to be a big story. Well, you know, if you don't believe there's a God and you don't believe that there's something transcendent beyond the physical world, what's the story? Seriously, what's the story? Because you, if you're intellectually honest, it distills down to what's well, just a bunch of human beings, individual human beings, living their mini narratives, and nobody can really connect together the big narrative. The Bible connects it for us. The Bible gives us the big narrative. The Bible gives us the big story. And if you don't understand the big story, the meta-narrative, you'll never figure out how your mini-narrative fits. You're just a fish in the big sea. And when the big fish gulps you up, you're done. I don't know if you followed that analogy there, but I mean it's that it's that kind of it's that kind of despair. One of the uh, I mean it's just amazing to me that these very brilliant people, one of them was a French existential philosopher, Jean-Paul Sartre. He wrote a book called Being and Nothingness. 
That's a great title, isn't it? But he ended up, because he's an avowed atheist, because this is a purely materialistic world, and because I am a cosmic accident, basically, I am facing a world of nothingness. Wit and intellect, he's being very intellectually honest, which leads to a life of despair. Can you imagine that? Why would you believe that? Why would you embrace that? And he was one of the great founders of atheistic existentialism in the early 20th century. Very famous guy. He'd write all these books and people read the books. And, they, and I remember when I first read through that, I was in graduate school. I thought, I just wasted an awful lot of time reading and studying this book. And all it did was help me to understand there is a significant number of people who really believe that's the world we ought to embrace. And see what Solomon is telling us by this little phrase, eternity in man's heart, that is never going to satisfy. You will always lead to despair until you settle that issue. What is the eternal significance of what I'm doing? Why am I doing what I'm doing? And that's what Solomon's been pressing so far through the book. Now, did you have a question, Fred? Well, did you say Descartes was that the philosopher? Jean-Paul Sartre. Oh, Sartre, yeah. Okay. Um, you know, the very question that you had, or statement that you made when you take your last breath, in a business transaction, I was talking to this gentleman, and I thought he was a believer, and the person that I characterized with some time ago, um, he has a heart for reaching out to people. And uh, I asked him if he could this guy call business guy. And uh, I didn't know if he was a believer or not. And I wanted someone to share the gospel with him. And uh, I thought maybe John could do it. And so he, uh, he asked him the very same question, the statement you made. Um, where will you be when you take your last breath? And he said, I will be with the Lord mm. Jesus, my Savior. Mm. And, the real spot. Yeah, yeah. I was happy to see that. Yeah. Um, because I think if we understand the stakes, if we take our last breath, we want to see people in heaven. Oh, absolutely. And, um, and uh, one one guy in an in a uncivilized part was uh, a missionary coming, he said, uh, um, what what is his name? And he said, Well, we call him Jesus. He said, I knew him, but I just didn't tell his name. Mm. And so I think the Holy Spirit too is pervasive, isn't it, Jim? Of course. Of course. In the sense of convicting man that you may say one thing, but in your heart of hearts, you know. But one day you will face judgment. Don't you think? Well, what Jesus, in John chapter 16, Jesus talks about, it's a very significant, important discourse on the role of the Spirit. I'm going back to God and the Spirit is going to do. And among other things, he says, the role of the Spirit is to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. That is the work of the Holy Spirit in the unbeliever's life. Convict them of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And I have to unpack all three of those words, what that means. But that is the work of the Holy Spirit, that convicting work. 
But the Bible also makes it very clear. You can suppress, you can harden your heart against the Spirit, and he will not be able to minister to you. And so, I mean, not only God knows where those lines are in a person's life, but that, that, is, that is also part of what Solomon is saying. That is an element of how God is working in the unbeliever's heart and Vic and Sin writes his judgment, see and think about eternity things, eternal things. And uh, part, part of the, uh, let me put it this way, part of the challenge that we face now in our world that up until the 19th century, very few people faced this. Now we face it with Darwin and with all that followed and, and built on Darwin. For the first time in human history, atheism is respectable. Up to that point, there were very, actually, it may have been many people who sort of living like it, but philosophically and religiously didn't have the conviction of atheism. Now it's a very respectable thing to do. Go on a university campus, you see that. A secular, atheistic, materialistic worldview is a common, I, I don't believe it's a majority, and so in that, if that is your conviction, that is very difficult to press into that. Only the work of God can do that. Because you have respectable people who mock and make fun of any, not just Christianity, any kind of a religious view of things, where there's something beyond the physical world. And so the Holy Spirit can break that down, I I know many people in the academic world who come to know Christ with the Holy Spirit. And it's always a miracle of the Spirit. <laughs> There's no other explanation for it. But I want you to reserve one more thing about this. At the end of verse 11, okay, he's reaching a conclusion. This, this with God in the picture and God in my, my perspective on things, he makes everything real in its time. Go back to the poem, the 14 opposites. He's put eternity, part of being in the image of God, there's an eternal, a drive, a compulsion. I want to understand why I'm doing what I'm doing. Turning it on. But thirdly, he says this, yet, it's a contrast word, it's a strong adversative, yet, he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. So you have a very positive statement wrapping it around that aesthetic word of beauty, you have the second, the importance of that eternal dimension on things. But now, but wait a minute. There's a limit to this. There's a boundary to this. You're finite. You're temporal. God's infinite. God's eternal. You are never going to get and find out satisfactorily everything God's doing from beginning to end. And this is the mystery that Solomon will probe for the rest of the book. I believe, this is Solomon summarizing what he's arguing, I believe in the sovereignty of God. I believe in the providence of God. Now, he's not just sovereign distant. He's involved in managing detail every aspect of my life in every aspect of this world. but I'm never going to understand everything he's doing. There's always going to be a mystery. It's a word he's going to use. That's a, that's, a, that's a word that's peppered throughout Scripture. There's a mystery about things. You're never going to figure it out. 
And so Solomon keeps pressing. That's good. When we get into the next section, starting in verse 16, he starts to bring up these things. If God is provident, if God's provident is real, and God's good and God's just and God's sovereign, why is this still happening? He's going to start bang, 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 bang. Why this? Why this? Why this? If you ever study the book of Job, that is exactly what Job has done. He cannot figure out why he's in the situation he's in. And he, you know, from chapter 3 on through 3, he keeps defending himself against his friends, though far below that, who are charging him with all kinds of things. That's not true. That's not true. That's not true. And finally, he's so frustrated. And another guy named Elihu comes in. He has a long debate with him. Finally, he's so frustrated, he starts hurling accusations at God at the end of the book. And you know what's really interesting? God never answers his questions. Unless Job wrote the book, and we don't think he did, but unless Job wrote the book, he never really ever truly understands why what happened didn't happen. And God does not answer his question. He just says, Job, listen, where were you when I created the universe? Did I, I seek your counsel? Did you share with me your perspective on things? And all God is saying is the same thing Solomon is saying. We're never going to be able to find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. He's eternal. He's infinite. We are not. And there's always going to be this gap. Not in terms of salvation, not in terms of where we're going to spend eternity, but in terms of what God's doing. There is a meta, and we use that word, a neat word, I like the word, but there is a meta-narrative. But that meta-narrative is a story told by God. It's his story, history. It's his story. And it's, it's primarily, it isn't only, but it's primarily a redemptive story. He's trying to reconcile and redeem his rebellious creatures. And that is, of course, why he sends Jesus and all the wonderful story, uh, message of the gospel. So this now sets us up for the rest of the book. Because he absolutely believes in the sovereignty and providence of God. He absolutely affirms that God's control and God's systematic ordering of his world is beautiful. And God's put in humans, part of being in his image, this impulsive drive to figure things out. But there's a limit. You'll never figure everything out. That's one of the reasons why we just we keep on studying. We keep on learning. We keep on investigating. That's why we keep sending things to the moon and send the web telescope. Have you seen some of those fantastic photographs from web telescope? That's why we keep doing all that. Why are we doing that? Why are you spending these hundreds of millions of dollars shooting these things up in the space that's orbiting a, a million miles above Earth? It's orbiting, taking these fantastic pictures. Why are we doing that? We don't understand more and more of the world in which we live. Who understands all of it? God does. And one of my teachers used to say, we are just beginning to think our thoughts after God. You follow what that means? We're as we think and as we investigate, we're thinking and investigating about God. Now, the, the person who's an atheist working in the chemistry lab, that's not how he looks at it or she looks at it. But the person who is a believer working in the chemistry lab, that's how they're looking at it. So, I, I love getting to this point in the book 
Because what Solomon is doing is he's resolving some of the tension, but he's not eliminating the tension. Do you understand that sentence? Because if God is sovereign and his providence is real, that's eternal, infinite God, sovereign will. We're never going to understand. We will, I, even in eternity, I don't know if we're going to still understand everything. Maybe we will, because the noetic effect, noetic means the effect sin has on our mind, will be gone. We'll have a re brand new resurrected body. Maybe we will. But my own conviction is we're going to go on learning. We're going to go on discovering and learning. I really believe that. My vision of heaven is every afternoon we're going to take a break from our work and we're going to have Bible studies. And, and Paul is going to lead a Bible study on Romans. That is, I want to be there. And then, but there's going to be another one. Moses is going to lead one on the Pentateuch. I want to be that one too. So I hope they'll lost to tape things, maybe the MP3 players in heaven or whatever. But I really believe we will, because the Bible does not say that to have a resurrected body means you're infinite. Your omniscient doesn't say that to us. We're still creatures who now have a glorified body. So I will see. Only in heaven will tell us that. But we're at a fantastic point in, in, in the book of Ecclesiastes. But you'll see that this doesn't resolve everything for Solomon. Because we're only chapter 3 and there are 12 chapters of the book. So you know he's got a lot more he wants to talk about. All right? Verse 12, then, I perceived that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. And he's going to really develop this in the book. That the capacity to enjoy life is a gift from God. So many Christians don't understand that. So many Christians do not enjoy their lives. Solomon is saying, I've learned something. The capacity to enjoy what I do is a gift from God. Don't forget, if you go to the list of the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, 22 and 23, the second fruit of the Spirit is joy. Remember that? Love, joy, peace, pain. Remember that? Some of you don't remember it. Now you know it. Anyway, and it, it's, Paul will give this admonition in Philippians. Rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say rejoice. Nehemiah will write, the joy of the Lord is my strength. It's a pretty important word. Solomon is saying, the capacity to enjoy life is God's gift, man. You see, if you follow, if you follow what he has been saying, I'm leaving the box closed, I'm not considering God, where did he end up? In despair. He brings God into the picture. Where does he end up? Joy. It's a gift from my God to me to enjoy what I'm doing. 
when Bill Richards fell and broke his arm, I don't believe he broke out into joyous laughter. I'm pretty certain on that. I might be wrong, but I'm pretty certain on that. But I'm hoping and I'm believing that Bill is looking back and seeing, but God did take care of me. And, you know, there are certain things I can still have the joy of the Lord, even in the midst of the difficulties and struggles. Don't forget, until the Lord Jesus comes back for us, you and I live in a fallen, broken world where there's going to be grief, there's going to be hurt, there's going to be pain, there's going to be disappointment, there are going to be accidents. And all of the things that are part of a fallen, broken world. Jesus did not pray, take them out of the world, Father. No, send them into the world as you sent me into the world. I wish Jesus wouldn't pray that. Don't you? I wish you to pray, but Father, the moment they put their faith in me, take them home to heaven. Yeah. That's what I wish he would have prayed, but I didn't pray that. He said exactly, Father, when they put their faith in me, do not take them home. <laughs> what a horrible prayer. I don't mean that, but I mean, no. But what he's, because the very next, but Father, as you sent me into the world, we, it's pronoun change, we send them into the world. So that they're in the world, but not of the world. And that means we have to live with all of the junk of a fallen, broken world. It's not going to be made right till Christ comes back. That's a statement of faith. But that doesn't mean that, 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 this is an original thought with me. But we should be able to show the world what a life of joy looks like. Because they don't know it. For them, joy is drinking lots of alcohol, watching football, playing video games. None of, the, none of that is necessarily evil. But it can be so controlling and so addictive that that becomes the meaning and purpose of life. Nicholas Eberstadt has written a book about young men in American civilization today. It's a very depressing book to read because Eberstadt is observing young men in their 20s and very early 30s are just like Solomon. He doesn't say that, but I would argue just like Solomon before he realizes that he brings God into the picture. And there's despair, and what these are just locked. Many of them are still living with their parents who are 30 years old. They, their life is playing video games, watching, getting into all these, not, not you know, these incredible video games. You know more about it than I do. The technology, no, I don't mean you, but I mean the technology. <laughs> but the incredible technology of this stuff, it becomes addictive. And that's, I, I, if I have a job, that's what I'm living to do. So the industry just, just keeps hyping up these more and more and more. Why? Because they know the human behavior, you get to a point you're no longer satisfied, they got to do some more. And that's what keeps these industries going. They keep giving more. And so what Solomon is observing is something about and these young men today that Everstadt has been studying that's really difficult. It's a difficult issue for our country. Because this is where productivity is supposed to be coming for our economy. And they're they're not. They're not leaving, they're not living productive, meaningful lives. <clears throat> and he, he says, what do we do about that? He has some ideas. Um, I don't want to get into that, but my point is everything that Solomon is saying is, is extremely relevant in 2023. And it gives you and me the motivation, the answer to all of this is the gospel. It's not politics. 
United States Congress is never going to pass a law to fix this stuff. And neither is the legislature in Lincoln or the uh, city council in Omaha. You can't pass laws to solve this stuff. And so he goes on. It's a gift from God. And then he gives this, as he's closing us all out now in verse 14 and verse 15. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing can take away from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. Now, the ESV has translated that. It's a little awkward how they've translated it. I mean, it's a good translation, but it's a little awkward. Okay, what does Solomon say? The first part of verse 14. I am affirming the sovereignty and authority of God, the creator, the redeemer, and the sustainer of the world he created. What he does endures forever. You can't add to it. You can't take away from it. So if that's true, what is the only acceptable response to that? Worship. The word fear, and they've correctly translated it fear, but the word fear in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, when it's used of a believer, the word fear is a worship word. It, it can and does mean, you know, oh, no, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid of something greater, like the sword of Damocles. That's not really the believer. I don't, I'm not afraid of God anymore. You know what I mean? I'm not afraid of him. He's my savior, but I stand in awe of him. I stand in reverential awe of him. I can't understand everything he's doing. I, you know, I, 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 I love this stuff because it's sort of a hobby. I love this stuff with the web, and I look at that, and I just admire it. You have, do I understand that? What I see? Do I understand what I'm saying? No. <laughs> I really don't understand it. And so it's like, okay, what's my response? My response is, wow. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. And you just look at that. Wow, that's worship. That's worship. My, this declares God's majesty, his power, his love of beauty, his love of order, his love of, of, of incredible complexity. That's what Solomon is saying. Your response to the response to eternity is worship, because you're a temporal, finite, pretty shrimp-like little grasshopper-type being. That's not that's not derogatory. That's reality. From God's vantage point, as, as Isaiah chapter forty says, we're like grasshoppers. That's not demeaning. That's just the reality. But the reality is also God loves these grasshoppers. That's what Solomon, that's what David says in Psalm 8. Lord, I look at the heavens that you've created. Look at this. Why do you care about me? And Solomon is saying, my response to this is worship. And there's another reason, verse 16, verse 15 is a very difficult verse. 
There's another reason why his response is one of all. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. That takes you back to the very beginning of the book. There's nothing new under the sun. The fallen, broken nature of everything, there's nothing new under the sun. And then this is what's difficult. It's a very difficult Hebrew phrase. And God seeks what has been driven away. Huh? NIV translates it, God will call the past to account. New American Standard translates it, God seeks what has passed by. We're talking about eternity. We're talking about an attribute of God. We're talking about the sovereignty of God. We're talking about the providence of God. Solomon is talking about the government of the universe. He's talking about how God governs his universe. It's not random. It's not an impersonal force called natural selection. It's what Darwin called it. It's a sovereign, providential God who has a meta-narrative that he's working out. And he will call everything to account. That's what Solomon is saying here by this difficult phrase. God seeks what has been driven away. God seeks what has passed by. New, New International. God will call the past to account. NIV is to great liberty there, but they've maybe captured it. God will call up everything that's happened and make it right. This is a statement of God's sovereignty, God's providence, God's goodness, and God's justice. He doesn't miss anything. And that's another reason why his response of worship, so that people fear before him, there's another reason for it. The sovereignty and providence of God means he's going to call everything from the past. Right. Isn't that also a redemptive statement? Um, I think it is. And it's God sees what has been driven away, and what was the first thing that was driven away was Adam and Eve. And what has come from Adam and Eve is, is mortal man who rebels against God, and God is trying to seek to give us all back. All the word of recon work of reconciliation, everything. No, that's exactly right. And it's it's really you have to and you have to men you have to think deeply about this. You can't approach this in a cursory super. You have to let your mind meditate and think deeply about this. Again, New American Standard: God seeks what has been passed by. NIV: God will call the past to account. ESV: God seeks what has been driven away. Or another paraphrase: God seeks. What has been pursued by man? In other words, and this is really an important conviction I have, and it's a very important teaching of the scriptures. This is a universe that reflects God's justice. 
God will settle all accounts. God will make everything right. Sometimes you and I see God make something right in, in space-time history. We see him do it. Hitler declared in 1933, I'm going to build a thousand-year Reich. It lasted for 12 years. And you saw what happened to Germany. You saw what happened to him. I'm saying all that, you, you, go back, you go back into history, you study Alexander the Great, and what he did incredible. In 323 BC, he drops over dead in Babylonia. I mean, you can just go through, sometimes in, in history, God makes things right. Sometimes he doesn't. When will he make things right? In eternity. The Revelation 20 calls it the great white throne judgment. And so what Solomon is, another reason why there's worship, there's fear before him in the end of verse 14, is because God's government of the world involves his justice. Because it's going to be something that Psalm's going to start getting into. The very next thing he's going to bring up in the next paragraph, verse 16, is God, if you're sovereign and your providence is real and you're ruling the world, why do I see so much injustice? Next paragraph. If you're the sovereign judge of this world and your providence is real, God, why do I see so much oppression? I don't understand it, God. And it's, it's something that comes up through Scripture. You see it in the Psalms of Asaph and the Psalter. Solomon, uh, Asaph will say, uh, God, I, I don't understand. Why are you prospering the wicked? Why are you allowing these wicked, evil people to prosper? That's a really important question. People are asking that question in 2023. Here's what Solomon is saying. But he's affirming something. God's governing of his universe does involve justice. The, the system of justice in the Bible is called talion justice. God will make everything right. Sometimes he does it in history. Sometimes he will do it in eternity. Nothing misses him. Nothing passes him by. And that's, that's an affirmation of our faith, because sometimes we don't see that. I don't know how you, I sometimes get so frustrated with, you're listening to the news, you're reading the news, and you say, my, 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 my. You know, just here in Omaha, we had two shootings, you know, in, 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 our, in our city this week. And, I mean, just a little mini example of what's happening all over the country and all the kind of things that you can get despair about. It. This is a mess. Things are bad. And you factor in all the stuff that's happened in Ukraine and all the stuff that's happening in China. Just get, I just want, you know, if you're going to watch the news, be balanced. <laughs> At some point, say, my wife says that. I mean, we're either going to turn this off or I'm leaving the family room. You know, still get up and walk out. Because I don't need to hear any more of this. Now, it's not, you're not putting your head in the sand and ignoring it. But there, there is a threshold of how much evil you can take. I don't need to hear any more of this. No, you do need to be informed. Anyway, the, the point is, you do get to that point. You do get to that, that, that threshold. God, did you miss this? Did this slip up on your blind side? Did you not see this? And then you get real personal. You get down to people you know that get cancer. Or people have a heart attack. 
or I mean, or a terrible car accident, or a, you know, I mean, just you know, can have a long list of things. And you say, God, why? If you're God, if you're, if the rule of your universe, as the sovereign order of this universe, is a good, just rule, God, what? because remember, this is the point, though. Our fallen, broken world is not God's fault. We're the ones in rebellion against him. That he loves us is amazing. So what's the answer to evil? This is not original. It comes from John W. Stott's great book. The answer to evil is the cross. Look at the cross. Because there, God's grace and mercy and compassion met with his justice. He crucified his son to offer loving, saving grace to his rebels. That's how God's dealing with evil. The cross. And so Solomon's tension, Solomon's frustration is he's now affirming the sovereignty of God and the providence of God. That's clear. Genesis, excuse me, Ecclesiastes 3 settles that. He affirms that. But the mystery of life frustrates him. That's why I love this book, because the mystery of life frustrates me. And the very things that Solomon starts bringing up are things I would bring up too. He's going to slowly... Get the answer. Slowly get, but it's still going to be a mystery. Because as we've read, you and our finite and temporal, God's infinite and eternal. Don't you want to worship a God like that? God's meta narrative, I love that word. God's meta narrative is on track. His story is being declared and proclaimed. And you and I are part of it. In the words of 1 John chapter 4, he that is in you is greater than he that is in the world. Don't be afraid. We're overcoming. Well, we got done exactly and precisely and minutely to the greatest detail exactly what I wanted to get done today. So that is that hardly ever happens. And I think the reason was because I didn't let any of you ask any questions. That's what I'm doing. No, I'm just kidding. It's just it's so important to, to work through this and not have a lot of disruptions. Try to get all this and make sure you, you get the total argument Solomon laying out for. This is a fantastic passage of scripture. I mean it really is. And I hope you resonated with it. I didn't hear any amen, so I guess you didn't. But anyway, so next week we're going to start. He's going to start to raise. I will call them the way I call them in the in the outline. He's going to raise a whole series of apparent contradictions. Okay, I've affirmed all this, but so some things I still haven't figured it out. And it's going to start with verse sixteen of chapter three. I'm going to pray. You guys online, okay? Yes, yep. we're good. Yeah, right. we're good. Thank you. All right, I'm going to pray. Father, I thank you for Solomon. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for inspiring him to write this book. Uh, This, to me, is one of the most relevant books in the Bible for people in the 21st century. Because the very things that Solomon's pursued, 
and the despair that he reached is only resolved in coming to a relationship with you. And as Solomon reviews this in this marvelous passage in chapter 3, the poem, but then his three-part conclusion, that is exactly where we are. What you do, God, is beautiful. Your management of your world is absolutely unbelievable. And you've put as being part of your image this eternal, this desire to understand eternally, why are we doing what we're doing? What's the significance? But yet at the same time, we're never going to figure it all out. But you are a God who is a God deserving of worship. And you give us the gift to even enjoy the life you've given us. Help us to be men of joy as well as men of faith. Men who have come into a relationship with you through Jesus Christ. We understand the glory and grace and majesty and compassion and love of the salvation you offer us. We've accepted it. We've appropriated it to our lives by faith. We're beginning our walk with you. We're on the journey. And as we're on that journey, this journey of faith and dependence, Paul calls sanctification, we're growing more and more like Jesus. We're beginning to learn more and more about what you're doing, and we see how we fit. We're of infinite value and importance to you. Each one of us is of value and importance to you. Help us to be men of faith, men who represent you well in this world. So we trust each guy to you here in the room as well as online. May we represent you well the rest of this day. In Jesus' name, amen.